Well, the turkey is probably finished. I suspect that there might be a little bit of that quivering cranberry jello-y stuff kind of tucked in the back recesses of the refrigerator. The pecan pie has certainly been gone for a couple of days now, and that's to your regret. Thanksgiving is over. And I, I trust that as you have gone through Thanksgiving, that it has been a time for you to reflect on family and some of the external kindnesses that God has given us. But far more, far more significantly, I trust that that it's been a season in which you have reflected on God's great kindness to you in salvation and all of the spiritual benefits that come to us through Jesus Christ. We are grateful for God's kindness to us, aren't we? it, It is, I'm going to use this word several times today, it's shocking how kind He is to us. But there's also, even while we're thinking about elements of thanksgiving, there's, an, there's a tendency to recognize the absence of blessings we don't have. Like, like a child who submits a, a list of Christmas gifts on their wish list and doesn't receive two out of the top five gifts and is, is shattered by the experience of not getting everything that he wanted. Sometimes when we think about reasons for thanksgiving, that thanksgiving is tempered by a regret over the things we don't have. And one of the things I'm thinking about particularly here is is the thanksgiving that we want to offer the Lord for the salvation of those family members who do not yet know Christ. And that brings immense regret to us. The Apostle John says in 3 John chapter, uh, verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. And certainly he's speaking about his spiritual children, but if, if it is his great joy to have his spiritual children walking in the truth, then isn't it true that our physical, biological children gives us even a greater joy to see them walking in the truth? But, but if that's accurate, then isn't it also true that there is no greater regret than to see our children, spiritual or biological, not walking in the truth? There's this great longing that we have for for those who are family members to know the truth of Christ, to to embrace the truth of Christ and be changed by by the truth of Christ. And and when they don't embrace that truth, it gives us great regret. It might be parents, it might be children, it might be extended family members, it might be friends that are so close to you that that you would call them to be family. Like, Like you, we have multiple people with whom we're associated, that our children call by affectionate terms of, of uncles and aunts and grandparents. There's a bond of fellowship that goes way beyond just, just friendship. And when those people don't know Christ, oh, it's just a deep longing and a deep regret and a deep sorrow. And certainly that is true of the Apostle as well as he thinks about the nation of Israel And he thinks about how they have been positioned by God for receiving the gospel, and yet they have rejected it. And the question is, why would someone reject Christ? Why would someone reject the the revelation of of the forgiveness that is offered? And why would someone reject the, the offer for freedom from sin? I don't know how many times over the years I've heard someone say to me, Terry, I just want to be liberated. I want to be freed from this. I am so sick of this sin. And yet some of those people that are so entangled by sin, and when you share with them the truth of what Christ can do to liberate them, they walk away from Him. Why do people do that? Why why do people not believe? Why did Israel not believe? It is not it is not for the sake of the weakness of the preacher, the declarer. It is not just for the it is not for the sake of the weakness of the message that is declared by the one who proclaims it. It is in the heart of the individual. Why don't people believe in Jesus Christ? Because unbelief is the result of one's own choice not to believe in Christ. As I alluded to earlier, Romans chapter 9 points out the elective purposes and plans of God, and yet in spite of His elective purposes, there is conjoined to that a human responsibility that is beyond our comprehension to understand by which man has the salvation plan made available to him and he is responsible to 
to believe in that plan of salvation. And when he doesn't, he is culpable. And when he doesn't, it is the result not of God's not electing him. It is the result of his own heart rejecting Christ and not wanting him. It is, it is in a word, an act of rebellion. Unbelief is an act of rebellion. And yet in the midst of this rebellion of unbelievers, there is still much evidence of God's grace. We, we might even say that when unbelievers reject the gospel of Christ, there is still a great demonstration of the surprising nature of God's grace. His grace is not only amazing, but, but it is surprising, and as we will see this morning, even shocking in the way it appears and in the way it, it is granted. What I want to do with you this morning is look at these five verses, six verses. Actually, I, I didn't pass math class every semester. It is six verses, not five. And I do want to look at these six verses twice. So you get two sermons for the price of one today. I want to look at, you, look at these verses first from the perspective of man and his unbelief. Why does he not believe and how does he not believe? And then a second time, I want to look at it from God's perspective and His grace and just how amazing that grace is. What does unbelief look like from man's perspective and and then God's perspective? First, from man's perspective, the overwhelming and overriding truth is that all men are responsible for their unbelief. They are held accountable to God. He holds them responsible for their rebellion against Him And their responsibility and their denial of Him comes in multiple forms. First, in verse 16, the Apostle reminds us that they do not obey God. They do not obey God. In verse 8, he tells us about the the righteousness that is based on faith. And we don't have to go um, into heaven in order to get Christ to come down to bring a righteousness to us. We don't have to, verse 7, go into the abyss to, to the place of death in order to bring Christ up to resurrect Him so that we can have righteousness given to us. We don't have to, verse 8, go anywhere because the Word is near. This message of faith, the, the righteousness that comes through faith in verse 6 is made near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He has descended from heaven. He has resurrected from the grave. He has ascended back into heaven, sitting as the Lord of the universe over for all things. This is the Christ that is made available to us. We don't have to look for Him. He is here. And the Apostle says at the end of verse 8, this is the word of faith which we are preaching. This, If people want to know Christ, this is, this is the message. This is the word that, that needs to be proclaimed to Him. And this message is nearby us. It's close at hand. Not only is this message a message that should be preached. It is a message that can be believed. Notice verse 11, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Anyone can believe, and when they believe, there will be no disappointment. There's verse 12, no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord is Lord of all. So there's one Lord and one Master, and He is Lord of both Jew and Greek. It's not as if they have separate gods. There is one God, and that one God is made available to all men, Jew and Greek alike, in the person of Jesus Christ. He is abounding in riches for all who call on Him. All can call, all must call, and when they call, they will not be disappointed. They will receive the riches of heaven for them. Verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call, anyone can call, and when they call, they will be saved. It's it's a, a great promise. And the question then is, why do not why do they not believe? If they have no excuse, if if the message is nearby, if proclaimers are here and they can believe, then why do they not believe? He gives us a reason in verse 16, the first of the reasons However, so the message has been preached, verses 14 and 15. However, they did not all heed the good news. That word heed is a form of the word hear. He's going to talk about that word again and bring it up again in verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. Verse 18, surely they have not 
Surely they have never heard, have they? And so he's emphasizing in these first few verses the importance of hearing. And and in verse 16, what he's drawing out is this principle that if we really hear, we will obey, we will submit to. And that's the sense of the word heed, that we will place ourselves underneath, that we will respond to, we will follow, we will follow the instructions of. This is... This is kind of like if you have small children in your home, you know, two, three, four, or 18 years old, or perhaps you know of people who are, have those kind of children. Every once in a while you will hear the mother say, trying to control her exasperated tone and not always succeeding, saying something like, aren't you listening to me? And what's she asking in that moment? She's not asking, do you have, are your auditory canals open and, and are the little cochlea, you know, um, waving and sending impulses to your brain so that you can hear the sounds that have been communicated to you? She's not asking that. She's asking what? Why aren't you obeying me? Why aren't you listening so as to obey? She's not asking, do you have wax in your ears? She's asking, do you have wax in your heart? that is precluding you from obeying. And that's what the Apostle is addressing here. They do not all heed the good news. It's an internal problem, not an external problem. It's a heart problem, not an ear problem. And I want you to notice that what is not being heeded, what is not being obeyed, is the good news. Notice that? They did not all heed the good news. The word good news is actually the word gospel. It can be translated either way. It's, it's the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And notice that Paul is saying that if you respond to the gospel, that response to the gospel includes obeying it. We might translate it this way. However, they did not all obey the gospel. And Paul is putting in parallel the ideas of obedience and belief. In fact, we can see it very clearly. Notice the next phrase. He says, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And that little phrase, heed the good news, obey the good news, is put in parallel to believed our report. So to obey is to believe, and the good news is the report that is given by God. To obey, excuse me, to believe is to obey. To respond to the gospel is to obey the gospel and be obedient to the gospel. Paul here in verse 16 is quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. You'll remember Isaiah 53 for, for numerous reasons, one of which I hope is that we, when we were in verse 15, we saw that he was quoting from Isaiah 52. And, and the blessing and the privilege of being those who would go into the nation of Israel and proclaim the message of the coming of the Messiah. So he says in 52.7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. This is, this is an immense privilege to take this gospel message to the nation of Israel about the coming of the, the Messiah and the suffering servant that He he will unfold in chapter 53. But he begins chapter 53 with this somber note. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the arm of God's power, the authority of God, the position of God, the righteousness of God, all that has been revealed to the nation of Israel. But who has believed that message? They haven't believed. They, they have rejected it. And so... So they rejected it in the Old Testament. They rejected it in the day of Paul. They will continue to reject it until we will see at the end of Romans chapter 11 that one day God will redeem that nation and the nation will accept their Savior. But this pattern of unbelief has been consistent through time. And friends, what I want you to see particularly that the unbelief is connected to their rebellion against obedience. They don't want to obey You see, when God calls us to salvation, that call to salvation is not just an invitation to have our sin debt removed. It is. But it is a call, notice, to heed Him. 
to obey Him. There's an obedience that flows from the Gospel and is natural to the Gospel. It is a a call to a new way of life. It's a call to following and obeying Jesus and the Word of God. It's, It's a call to have a new King of our lives. I am taken off the throne of my life and and Christ is positioned and enthroned as the master of my life. In fact, this this idea of obedience and faith being tied together started very early in this letter. The apostle writes about Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 5. He says about Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake. So there is a faith that that should produce obedience, and that is what we are working for, a faith that is obedient. This is, this is the natural flow that when we believe, we will obey. In fact, it's not just the way he begins the book, it's also the way he ends the book, speaking about the revelation of Jesus Christ and his gospel. He says in 1626, next to the last verse of the book, Now is manifested this revelation of Christ and the gospel. It is now manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. So this faith should be producing obedience and that is what we are working towards. And that is the very thing that those who do not want Jesus Christ will reject. They will reject obedience to Him. They do not want Him to be Lord and Master. They do not want Him to be Sovereign. They are happy to have Him take away their sin, but they don't want Him to have command over their lives. Why do people reject Jesus Christ? Because they do not obey God. They do not want to obey God. They do not want to submit themselves to Him. He wants, the unbeliever wants to remain autonomous over his own life. He does not believe Because he will not obey. There's another reason, verse 17. Because they do not believe God. They don't obey God. They don't believe God. Notice verse 17. So faith comes from hearing. Faith, the same word for belief. So belief comes from hearing. You have to hear. Again, not not audibly. But internally, in the heart, you need to hear internally. That's where faith and that's where belief comes from. And that hearing mechanism comes by the Word of Christ. What must be heard from God is the Word of Christ. Now the question is, what does he mean by Word of Christ? And it could be that he means the words that Christ spoke while He was on earth. And that certainly fits grammatically, it certainly fits theologically, and that could be what He is referring to. Or it could mean that He is talking about the words that are spoken about Christ. So so words that have been revealed about Christ and about the Gospel and what salvation is about. And I think that is exactly what the Apostle means by that phrase, the Word of Christ. It's, it's all the teachings, all the message that we have that will produce salvation when we come to Jesus Christ and trust in Him. He uses a similar phrase back in verse 8, talking about the righteousness that's based on faith. He says, the word is near, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. The word that constitutes faith in Christ. So it's, it's the message about faith. And in the same way that it's the message about faith in verse 8, I think what he means here in verse 16, verse 17, it is the message about Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has done. He has, as He's already identified in verses 6 to 8, He's the one who's descended from heaven. He's genuine God taking on genuine flesh. He is the one who genuinely died and is resurrected from the grave. And now He has ascended back into heaven as genuine Lord and Master of the universe. That is the message about Jesus Christ. That is the gospel about Jesus Christ. And that is the message that the unbeliever simply will not believe. He's happy to have a helpless infant Jesus that can demand nothing of him except to feed him. Right? That's what infants do. What what, what does an infant demand? An infant demands food now. They'll take Jesus that way. But they don't want a Jesus who's ruling in the heaven and demanding obedience to Him now. They do not want a miraculous Jesus. They, they do not want a sovereign Jesus. They don't want a Lord Jesus. And they, they will take 
a Jesus like Thomas Jefferson had. Thomas Jefferson took his copy of the scriptures and, and pulled out of the New Testament every reference to the deity of Christ or any of his miraculous works or any of his declarations by which he asserted himself to be one with God, anything that exalted God in the fullness of his deity, he removed all those things so that he would simply have the moralistic teachings of Jesus. And he ended up with an 84-page New Testament. Well, that's convenient if you don't want salvation. But it is absolutely inadequate to say there's no redemption that comes from an undivine Savior, Jesus. Frankly, there's nothing worth following if He's not divine. But that, 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 is, that is what Jefferson did. Now, most of your friends and most of your family members won't take an exacto knife or a pair of scissors to their copy of the Scriptures and, and literally do what Jefferson did. But friends, that's what they're doing in their heart. They do not want that Jesus. They're happy with the Jesus there in the nativity set. That's cool. They're happy with a moralistic Jesus. They're happy with a teaching Jesus. They're happy with a social justice Jesus. Just don't give them a sovereign Jesus. That is the very one thing they will not have. They will not believe that, and they will not be saved. It gets worse. They do not listen to God. Verse 18. Paul here in verse 18 takes up a a supposed objection to what he's saying about the responsibility of Israel to believe. And so he says, But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? In other words, They haven't heard, they haven't heard inwardly because they never actually received the proclamation. They never actually heard the declaration of who Jesus is because if they had heard the message about the Messiah, then surely they would have believed and surely they would have responded. It simply must be that they never just, they just never got the message. They never got the memo. They never, they never read that portion of the Old Testament. They, they never had it understood or explained to them so they could understood, understand. And they've never heard, have they? Paul denies that. Indeed they have. And then he quotes from, from Psalm 19, Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. If you remember your psalms, you'll remember that Psalm 19 is one of the great psalms of the psaltery. It is, it is a psalm that unfolds the revelation of God. In the first six verses, the psalmist gives us God's general revelation. So how he declares to all men everywhere through his creation, his existence and his position. And then in verses 7 to 14, he unfolds his particular revelation or his special revelation so that we can be saved. So the first six verses explain God exists and all men are accountable to him. And then the last eight verses of that psalm explain how we can, how we can come to know him and how he has revealed himself to us. And, and, Paul quotes from that opening section about God's general revelation. So verse 1, the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Verse 3, there's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. In other words, you're not going to hear anything audible from the heavens. You didn't get up this morning and see the glorious sunshine and, and the sun didn't say, psst, psst. I'm talking about the glory of God today. It didn't audibly happen. But if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, that's what happens. In verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth. So, so there's a message or a voice that's gone through all the earth. So there's no place in the earth that doesn't see the glory of God revealed in creation and their utterances to the end of the world. All the world sees this. Now, if you're listening carefully, you're thinking, okay, Paul's talking about the gospel message going to Israel, but this is general revelation. How... How is Paul using this section about general revelation, which can't save us, just knowing God exists is not enough to save us from sin? 
We need a special revelation of the Scriptures as it unfolds the Messiah and unfolds the work of Christ in order to be saved. So how is Paul using this using verse 4 to explain that the gospel's gone out? He's just using it illustratively, as if to say, friend, the gospel has gone through all the world in the same way as the glory of God is seen in all the world. God has not withheld the gospel declaration from anyone, anywhere. They've, they have an opportunity to the gospel in the same way that they, as they have an opportunity to His glory as seen in creation. And then, I think the apostle would also have us to be, rem- to remember the end of that psalm as if to say, friends, if God has revealed Himself generally, let's also remember He's revealed Himself particularly in that same psalm, and who received that psalm but the Israelites. They have the gospel message. They have had revealed to them what they needed in order to know God. The problem is they simply have not listened. There is no excuse. The Word of God has traveled the world. They simply won't listen. It was that way in the Old Testament. It's that way in the New Testament. It is that way in our day. And it will be that way until the end of the age. My friends, God has spoken savingly. Man has simply refused to listen to Him. There's a fourth reason why people are responsible for their unbelief and fourth way in which they do not believe, and that is they do not know God. Verse 19, Paul takes up a similar question as he did in verse 18 but I say surely Israel did not know did they in other words well okay maybe they heard but maybe the problem is they didn't know they didn't understand they didn't comprehend friends that statement is really incredible how how could someone attempt to justify Israel's unbelief by asserting they didn't know the requirements of God because they certainly did know in fact chapter 9 right verse 4 They are Israelites to whom belongs adoption as sons and glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. In nine ways they should have known. How can you say they don't know? The whole Old Testament is the unfolding of His revelation Absolutely, they know. They do know God. He has been revealed to them. And Paul demonstrates that he is knowable to them by a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 32. The first part of verse 19 is from Deuteronomy 32. The last part of verse 19 is from Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 65. Just by way of reminder, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses is about to die as the nation is about to head into the land. And so he is singing a song of a reminder about the history of Israel. And in 32.7, he is reminding them of how God has chosen them and God has elected them to be His particular people. So he says in verse 7 of of Deuteronomy 32, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, and he will inform you. Just a side note there, where's their father? Their father's dead. Because he had to die in the wilderness for his unbelief and rebellion. So at the end of the wilderness traveling, that little phrase, ask your father, is a subtle reminder. Remember your rebellion against God who has been revealed and God who has chosen you to be his. Ask your father, he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you, they're all gone. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, or Israel, is the allotment of his inheritance. God inherits Israel. He made you his. So they knew what did they do with that knowledge about, about who God was and their relationship to Him? Verse 15, Deuteronomy 32. 
Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. He made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. So, so they rejected God. They rebelled against God. They embraced all kinds of other gods. They made gods of their own choosing and worshipped them. And they rejected the God whom they had been chosen to follow. Verse 21, this is God's response. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. I will choose a people who are not a nation, who are not the nation of Israel. And I will give them knowledge to provoke my people to have knowledge to respond to me in faith. And, and Paul's point in using Deuteronomy is to have us to understand that Israel did understand. They did know. It had been revealed. They did have comprehension. They simply refused to submit themselves to listen and to follow and to obey. They would not believe. In fact, this is not just this is not just in Moses. Notice verse twenty, he says, and Isaiah is very bold. So he's addressing this issue about did they know? And he says, first Moses, that's the law. Then Isaiah, that's the prophets. There are three groupings to the Old Testament the law, the writings, and the prophets. The law is the first part, the prophets the end part. And I think Paul would have us to understand that from the beginning of the Old Testament until the end of the Old Testament and all the things that are in between, Israel has known the truth. It has been revealed to them. They can know, they could know, they should know. And they just rejected what had been revealed to them. Lack of knowledge is no argument for Israel. She knows. In fact... This nation that God chooses, the end of verse 19, the nation that is without understanding, there, there are ignorant people, that's us, the Gentiles. We have been brought in, and friend, it's Paul's subtle way of saying, if the Gentiles know, then certainly Israel knows. There's no excuse. People know. People understand. They are responsible for their unbelief because they do not obey God. They will not believe God. They will not listen to God. They do know God. Verse 20 and 21. They do rebel against God. In concluding his argument for Israel's responsibility and all men to believe, the Apostle appeals to Isaiah 65. If you remember what's going on at the end of the book of Isaiah in Chapter 63 and 64, there is a petitionary prayer from a remnant of those who believe in Israel. They're actually in Babylon and, and they do believe. But they're saying our state is hopeless because most of the nation has rejected and, 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 and we want to have hope. We want to have confidence. We want to have God's grace on our lives. And so chapter 63 and 64 contain this prayer. Of, of, of hopelessness to God. And in chapter 65, we have God's response. And Paul quotes from verses 1 to 2 of God's response to this prayer of the Israelites. He says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me and permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. So there he's quoting from um, Deuteronomy 32 as well. The same, not quoting from, but it's the same idea as we found in Deuteronomy 32. And I said, here I am, here am I to a nation which did not call on my name. I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. 
They are disobedient to me. That is, they are always going against God. They're always going against His revelation. They know what God demands and they refuse to follow Him. And not only are they disobedient, but they are obstinate to Him. They are always contradicting Him, always refusing Him, always opposed to Him. They are always perpetually rebels against Him. And this is the final reason for their unbelief. Israel did not want God. They did not want His supremacy over their lives. He revealed Himself to them, and they rejected Him in favor of their own authority, their own autonomy. They wanted to be king. And friends, that was true of Israel, and that is still true today. That is why people don't want God. They want their own autonomy. They do not believe, not because God has not chosen them. They do not believe because they do not want Him. They do not believe because they are rebels. They may be rebels cloaked in nice clothing. They may be rebels who attend church every Sunday. They may be rebels who teach Sunday school. They may be rebels who are doing good things civically and involved in all kinds of civic organizations and they're very nice, congenial people. Friends, do not be confused. Those people in your lives who are the nicest of people who are still Christ rejectors are rebels at heart. And God will treat them that way at the end of the age if they do not repent. That's sobering, isn't it? I just found myself overwhelmed by the weightiness of that this week. And then I saw something else in this passage. And I want you to come back with me and see this passage a second way. I want you to see it from God's perspective. And I want you to see that God is shocking in His grace. In spite of man's rebellion against him, he is shocking in his kindness and his grace. He is shocking in his grace in that he has revealed good news. Notice verse 16, however, they did not all heed, obey the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Friends, where did that good news come from? Where did that, where did that report that was given and promised in Isaiah 52 and 53, where did that originate? Well, it originated with a declarer, with a preacher, right? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? Verse 14, how will they hear without a preacher? So it takes a preacher, it takes someone to declare, but that wasn't the origination point. The origination point is verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? So God sends good news to rebels against Him, enemies against Him, those who are opposed to Him. God sends people to declare the good news of salvation to them. And friends, that's not just gracious, that's shockingly gracious. Because you and I don't do that. what What do we do for those who are opposed to us? We shun them, we despise them, we pray the imprecatory psalms on their heads. Okay, yeah, you do, don't you? God, get him. We like those psalms. When Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that just, that just rings so hollow in our hearts. And this is, this is the nature of God who has sent the gospel, the good news to those who are rebels. There's another means in which it is shocking, and that is that He has proclaimed Christ. He's not just sent good news. He has sent the particular good news, verse 17, of Christ. He has sent the message about who Jesus Christ is and everything that Jesus Christ has accomplished. We've been given a a message about Jesus Christ that has that is just a little bit better than the message about Jesus Christ that Thomas Jefferson left us. What if if we had just a, a moralistic Jesus? What if we had just a motivational Jesus? What if we had a Jesus who tried really, really, really hard to do good things, but in the end he was just killed and put in a grave and and we walked away and from him and forgot him? We'd have nothing. We'd be destitute. 
Everything about our faith, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, would be absolutely worthless if that's what we had. But friends, we have the Word of Christ. We have the message that Christ has come to earth and He has fulfilled all of the law and fulfilled God's demands. We have the message that He died on the cross. He absorbed God's wrath. We have the message that God was propitiated, that God was satisfied with His death. We have the message that He is resurrected from the grave. We know that God accepted Christ's sacrifice when all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were not ultimately accepted because Christ rose from the dead. And we know that Christ was accepted because He is now seated at the right hand of God. The preeminent position in heaven, that's where Christ is. The position that is above every other position, the most exalted position in the universe, in the worlds, in anything that exists, Christ is there. That's the message we have. And friends, that's the message that we know. He didn't have to reveal it to us. That He has made it known to us is His grace alone. Would you notice this as well? He has declared Himself to the world. What's the most famous Bible verse that everyone knows? Go ahead, go ahead, say it. John 3.16 For God so loved the world. He loved the world. And he has not held himself back from the world. Notice verse 18. Their voice, what? The voice of creation has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. There's not a place in this world that doesn't have a testimony of God Every time someone awakens and opens their eyes, everyone, someone, every time someone awakens and, and takes a breath, he has the demonstration of God's glory. It's been revealed to him. He can see it. He can hear it if he has ears to hear and eyes to see. It's been proclaimed. It's been revealed. Friends, God is indiscriminate in His revelation of Himself. It has gone to all men. And that is, that is simply His overwhelming, amazing grace. He's shocking in His grace. He's revealed good news. He's proclaimed Christ. He's declared Himself to the world. He has redeemed people who are not His I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, not his people. That is, I'm going to provoke Israel to belief in the Messiah through the belief in the Messiah of those who weren't rightly connected to the Messiah. Friends, that's Gentiles. That's you. That's me. And not only that, by a nation without understanding. They don't know. We're ignorant. We don't know. In fact, it's worse than that. I don't know how many times as I've been preaching through the book of Romans, I've gone back to Romans chapter 3 to try and explain some principle. It's because because Romans chapter 3 is so foundational. We won't understand the magnitude of the grace of God until we understand how desperate our condition was. There is none righteous, not even one, 3.10. There is none who understands, 3.11. There is none who seeks for God. Nobody's looking for Him. Nobody wants Him. Nobody is pushing towards Him. Why aren't we going towards Him? Because chapter 5, verse 10, while we were enemies. No one who is an enemy goes to the king of the other side and says, will you be my king? Nobody wants Him to be king. And that was our position. We didn't want Him. We didn't reject Him. And it is at that very time, while we were enemies, that He was reconciling us. We were not His. And He has redeemed us nonetheless. Oh friend, on this Thanksgiving weekend and on this first Sunday of Advent, let that weigh heavily on your mind and joyously in your heart. He has redeemed you when you did nothing to move yourself towards Him. You did not want Him. But He made Himself available to you and He saved you. It's shocking. It's utterly shocking. It gets even greater. God is shocking in His grace. 
He has been patient with rebellious Israel and all sinners. Verse 20, the apostle says, Isaiah is very bold. He means by that word bold that Isaiah's words are daring. They're astounding. They're even shocking. Isaiah's words are shocking because he speaks of the condemnation of Israel. I mean, who could imagine that? That Israel, that God has chosen to be His covenant people and they're, they're under the condemnation of God and rightly under His condemnation. And Israel, who has chosen God, has rejected Him. Who could imagine that's shocking? And yet in the midst of that condemnation is also an amazing declaration of His grace. Notice verse 21. Verse 20, it is shocking that Israel rejects. It's shocking that the Gentiles have been brought in. But it's not just shocking news for Gentiles. Verse 21, it's also shocking for Israel. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Friends, God God has revealed Himself and welcomed rebels to come to Him. God has never saved any friend of His. He has only saved rebels and enemies who hated Him. And all day long, He holds open His hands and says, Come! All day long. It's not just a momentary, take it now. It's Black Friday sale. It's over on Monday. No, as long as you have breath, you have an opportunity to come to the One who has opened His arms and said, Come to Me. Embrace Me. Come to My grace. Come to My forgiveness. Come to My salvation. Friends, that is shocking. Because He saved me. Why would He save me? Why would He save any? Because we are rebels at heart. Oh, I want you to hear in this that He is always available to sinners. His entreaty and His petition is to all men to repent and for all men to come to Him. The arms are never closed. The arms are always open. The grace is always available. Do you see the astounding nature of this picture? Honestly, I've been struggling to come up with words to to describe as adjectives what this salvation, this grace is like. It is, it is astounding and it is magnificent and it is delightful and it is transforming and it is amazing and it is shocking. I just feel like I've been repeating myself all morning, but that, that, that's what it is. No words to comprehend the vastness of this shocking grace. To paraphrase one commentator, the magnitude, listen to this carefully, the magnitude of the overture of His mercy offered springs from the contradiction of the gravity of sin committed against Him. If you're just saying, well, Terry's getting a little worked up this morning. It just doesn't seem that shocking to me. It doesn't seem shocking to you because you have never grasped the weight of your sin and your rebellion. When you grasp just how awful you were, His grace will not just be amazing, it'll be shocking that He deemed to save you. What this also means 
is that if you are here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no lasting hope for you on this earth or in eternity without believing in Jesus. Your belief is not just a person. Your unbelief is not just a personal choice. Your unbelief is not just a, a personal preference that really doesn't have any consequence. Your unbelief in Jesus Christ, if God is who He says He is, must be condemned by Him. He cannot be God and leave your sin unpunished. So it's not just a personal preference that has no consequence at the end of the age. Friend, it is, it is a personal choice that has the greatest of consequences. He will. If He is willing to pour out His wrath on Israel, He's willing to pour out His wrath on you. And He will. Unless you come to the One whose arms are open wide. If you have not ever believed, if you are not trusting today in Jesus Christ, would you come to Him today? On this day of Thanksgiving, on this first day of Advent, would you come to the One who is inviting you to come to the King of Glory and receive the salvation you must have that you need and is available. It's shocking how people will reject that. And we've seen in this passage just why they will. I want that to be of some comfort to you in that you understand it's not a rejection of you, it's a rejection of Christ. And it's their decision. They're responsible. God will be right in condemning them. But I also want you to see the magnificent, shocking grace of God that makes salvation available to all men everywhere. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Our Father, we thank you for the provision of this grace. How kind you are. Would you give us minds to understand, hearts to believe? Would you give those of us who already believe boldness to declare this gospel message? Would you give us contentment when people don't believe? Would you give us faithfulness to continue to declare to those who do not believe? Would you give us perseverance in praying for those who do not believe? And would you cause us to be absolutely overwhelmed with gratitude for the shocking grace of God that has saved me? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.